whether it's taking care of family. <sighs> Mikey, stop harassing your sister. Climbing the corporate ladder. Yes, yes, yes. We need to create a new spreadsheet for the project. I know, I know. Or even taking care of loved ones. I'm here for you, Mom. You have to put you first. It's the Know You First podcast with host Amanda Smith. Welcome to this week's episode 25 of the Know You First podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Smith, and your personal guide for your self-love fest journey, which starts right here with you tuning in to hear the wonderful gems spilled by my amazing guests every week. And what I have for you this week certainly won't disappoint either. We're going to focus on leadership because it's something that I think we've gotten away from and maybe don't really fully understand its capacity. With leadership, I see far more than not us equating leadership with titles or some form of hierarchy. And sure, you know, there are organizational systems and certain family dynamics that has that designated person who is responsible for making decisions, but that's not the leadership I want to focus on this week. I want to focus on leadership that despite your role, your title, you are being accountable. You are making sound decisions. You are able to influence, to support the construct that you're working in, which can be family or certainly in your career. That kind of leadership requires a healthy dose of emotional intelligence, bravery, and self-awareness, which are not always innate attributes. These traits are developed by life, life experiences, failing forward, knowing your truth, a strong support system, and a clear understanding of where you're going so you can make that impact. This week is all about learning to take that first step when you don't see the staircase. Learning to stay resilient when it seems like the world is literally against everything you're trying to do. Learning to lead when you don't have a choice. Let's get into it. Exclusive guest interviews. My special guest this week has a fascinating story about resilience and leadership shown through the worst of times. Warwick Fairfax was the fifth generation heir to Australia's most storied media empire a business started by his great-great-grandfather. In the mid-80s, a couple of decades after the family took Fairfax Media public, Warwick, fresh from Harvard School with an MBA in tow, launched a takeover that failed three years later. The result? He lost the business for one that has been in his family for over 150 years and was worth $2.25 billion. That's right. (laughs) Billion with a B. In his new book, which is called Crucible Leadership and Available, where most books are sold, he talks about bringing leaders to their own crucible moments of failure. This book in the work of Warwick is a reminder to us all that you can really come back from anything. Take a listen. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Uh, Great to be here. I had an opportunity to learn all about your story. and. It's fascinating, to say the least. I don't want to give away too much because I know as we talk here, we're going to go into some of the meat of the conversation, your book, (laughs) your story, and all of those good things. 
But you were fresh out of Harvard Business School many years ago. You were getting ready to embark on an opportunity of your life. And I want you to take us back there, Warwick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Amanda. I mean, it's funny. I love the title of your podcast, Know Me First. I think the title of my life uh, up until the takeover was uh, Know Everybody Else First, Me Last, Suddenly Me Last, Me Irrelevant. Your podcast is about, I'm afraid, which was a colossal mistake. But yeah, so it was other everybody else first, me irrelevant was probably my my life. So basically for listeners, I grew up in a 150-year-old uh, family media company in Australia. Uh, it was founded by a person of great faith in 1841. It came out from England. Uh, over time, it grew to be a massive media company that had TV, newspapers, magazines, radio, newsprint mills. It basically had opinion leaders. Uh, so I grew up with about as much, frankly, money and privilege as you, you could possibly grow up with. But it wasn't just the money. We were respected because mm-hmm. the kind of papers we had was respected by society, really all sections of society, left, right, everybody, you know, felt like uh, what we were doing mattered. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, it's like, well, you know, this is a sacred trust that my yeah. family is being given it was really like being part of the royal family. I think of, you know, Prince William. I mean, how could he tell his dad and mom, I, oh, grandmother, I don't want to go in it. Look what happened to Harry when he said, I don't, I don't even want to be second in line or whatever Absolutely. he'd be. It's like, that's been very difficult for him, mega excruciating. So, it, it, but it felt like that. So with the expectations on me, I love my dad and my parents and, you know, my ancestors, they all tried to um, help the community. So. I did my undergrad at Oxford, worked on Wall Street, did my MBA at Harvard Business School. And none of this was about what I wanted to do. It was irrelevant. It was all about, you know, they took in the military here, duty, honor, country. It was very much like that. It was my duty. I might mm-hmm. die trying, but it's like, this is a sacred cause that I have to go into. So I felt like I had no, cho- no choice. And basically, 87, he was uh, kind of in his late uh, 80s. I was from a third marriage. So I launched this $2.25 billion takeover. Mm-hmm. Basically, I thought the company wasn't being run, wasn't being managed well and run along ideals of the founder. Whether that's true or not is a whole nother conversation, but it wasn't so much about money. It was just sort of this young, naive, idealistic crusader. Here we go. And it wasn't about my vision. It was about ancestors' vision. So and by late 1990, uh, Australia got in a big recession, newspapers are very cyclical, and the company went under. I mean, it was sold to other people, it still goes on, but I was responsible, directly responsible for losing a 150-year-old mm. family legacy, $2.25 billion takeover. So it was crushing at, at a lot of levels. So that's the short story. I, <laughs> I cannot even imagine. And in your story, you said something that I'd like for you to expand on because when you said that things in your life were pretty much set up for you, but even whether or not you wanted to do it or not, you felt yeah. like you did not have a choice. And talk about that a little bit because there may right. be some things in life that you know we are we're destined to do, so to speak. What we're passionate about is really what helps to fuel the motivation to decide whether or not to do it or not. I'd like you to Absolutely. talk about that because. While, while you still went on and did it, what 
what were those emotions that, you know, came up as you were like, uh, this is something that I know I'm supposed to do, but my heart might be telling me otherwise. Yeah. You know, I sadly didn't do any of the soul searching of what's my vision, what am I passionate about, what I believe. Um, it was all irrelevant. It's like, you know, I dearly love my parents and my dad who <clears throat> was, you know, had led the company. Um, I mean, he was through some family machinations. He was forced out of the company in 1976, which in family businesses is pretty typical. There's all sorts of family dynamics, be it big or small. So at that point, I'm kind of really the heir apparent. And I just felt like not only did I have no choice, but this was a sacred cause. How could I not do that? Disappoint my dad and ancestors. And I also kind of made the mistake, as I said, yeah, everybody talks about the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I I was the son that stayed home Mm. and worked hard. Mm. So I made the mistake of getting good grades. A lot of kids from wealthy (laughs) families, you know, they maybe they do drugs. It's very common amongst wealthy families. And so I did none of that. I worked hard, took life seriously. That just made expectations worse. It doesn't often happen. You know, I was, quote unquote, the good son. So it just, I mean, I just couldn't, I would have devastated my dad. And yeah, no, I don't know. I I felt like I had no choice and it was irrelevant. What other task I might think of is this is my course. This is my mission and I have to do it. So with that said, though, as you look back, are there any lingering regrets, if any, that you have that you felt like I should have said this or I should have done this? Or is there anything you think about right now that you feel regrettable about? Well, I mean, I, I mean, quite a fair amount in the sense of, yes, I wish I hadn't launched the takeover because, yes, normal, I guess, notionally, I lost massive sums of money. I mean, we're still extremely comfortable and money's not that important to me. So at a certain point, you get a bunch of zeros. It's kind of meaningless after a certain point. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, causing instability in a $700 million, 4,000, you know, obviously um, I didn't mean that. People didn't lose their jobs per se, but it was still very uncertain. Uh, So, you know, causing rifts in family, which were there, but what I did made it worse. Yeah, a lot of regrets in that sense. But, you know, it's funny, I've been, you know, we have our own podcast beyond the crucible. We interview people of every background, gender, race, every kind of crucible you can imagine. And I've heard a number of folks, even paraplegics, quadriplegics say what I went through was a blessing, which sounds crazy, frankly. Mm. I don't get that. Yeah. So what I went through was a blessing in that by it ending, yeah, the friction it caused, of course, I regret all that. But in terms of my own life, I would have been trapped in this gilded prison in which who I was was irrelevant. I get to be me. Exactly. After that whole thing ended, I began to think, well, you know, as in me first in the sense of you got to tend to yourself before you can tend to anybody else. I began to think of that. But I sort of started about age 30 thinking, who am I? Right. Most exactly. people ask who am I? So yes, in the long run, it's been a tremendous blessing for me and my kids. My yeah. kids don't have the expectations of going in the family business. They can do whatever they want to. Yeah. As long yeah. as they're happy, I don't care. So let me ask you, that was almost 31 years later. Okay. Why now, Warwick? Why now do you decide that today's the day I need to start telling my story? Well, it really happened. That's a good question, uh, Amanda. It it happened in the evangelical church in Annapolis. And, um, you know, it's one of those places where it's not political. It actually just 
talks about the gospel, which is a nice change these days. Um, but, uh, you know, my pastor asked me to give a talk in church. And so I did. He was talking about David being falsely persecuted by Saul. And look, I'm not a righteous person, falsely persecuted, but somehow by me sharing my story weeks and months after people said, you know, your story helped me. And I'm thinking, how many former media moguls are there out there? Justice, there's many stories that are sadly way too common. This is a story in theory that nobody can relate to, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, by talking about pain, suffering, and maybe what I learned. Um, so basically, that's when I started to write the book. It took me years to write it because imagine writing about your most painful experiences. It's, it's tough. And then, you know, to get it published, which published a couple, uh, you know, uh, weeks ago, you've got to go through a whole journey. So, yeah, I mean, my book, uh, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trust, Lead a Life Significance, it was a long road, but it began in 2008. And so really, the, the, the short answer to your question is what flipped the switch was, if writing about my pain and my story, as well as the stories of other leaders in history, but anchored by my story and my family, if that can help people, then it's worth writing. I like the fact that you say you talk and work with many people from all backgrounds on just their life. And no matter, you know, if they come through a family of wealth, such as yourself, or they come from, you know, a, a blue collar family, where the alignment lies is being able to survive and go through this life and be a good person and just really experience love. I'm a fan of the work that you're doing in that sense, because we always almost, we almost always see the divisiveness. What What's dividing? Like when I, our conversation right now, Warwick, sure, aesthetically, we are two very different people at two different <laughs> points of our lives, right. but we're sitting here talking right. about, you know, putting ourselves first. We're talking about crucible leadership. We're talking about embracing our trials. Us coming from two different backgrounds, we're coming together in this space that is very genuine and authentic. Yeah, I mean, I'm passionate about that. I mean, it's funny, you know, there's so much divisiveness that I never, ever post about politics or things that are divisive. It's not that I don't have viewpoints, but that's not my objective. I'd rather talk about what unites us than divides us. And certainly with crucibles, you know, the bounce back, whether they be people of faith or not, irrespective of whatever background, the the bounce back is always the same. It's back to your podcast of, know you first it's really you know just getting in touch with you learning the lessons of your crucibles sometimes it's it's your fault okay you need to do some soul searching sometimes it's not but either way there's forgiveness that's involved whether it's of other people or um or of yourself and and there's there's no getting around forgiveness yeah we had a guy on recently chris singleton whose mother was at the ama church in in charleston his mother was killed by you know the white supremacist and within a couple of those to forgive Dylan Roof. Mm-hmm. How do you forgive somebody like that? Exactly. His mother was a, a wonderful woman, great mm-hmm. faith, just the rock of their family. But he made that choice. And as I say, you know, if you don't forgive, it puts you in prison. It's like you're yeah. drinking poison. It's not about condoning, obviously. Right. It's about because you're worth it. Chris Singleton's worth it. And he has a you know, wife, kids, he has a a wonderful life and he's a great advocate for forgiveness and 
bringing people together. And so th- the solutions are always the same, whether it's Chris Singleton or whoever you, we've had is forgiving others, forgiving yourself, <clears throat> understanding how you're wired from my perspective, divinely, you know, designed, you know, God doesn't make mistakes or the universe, however you look at it, mm-hmm. living in light of that, doing something you're off the charts passionate about, which sometimes can come from a crucible. Yeah. Obviously it did for, for Chris Singleton. It doesn't have to, right. but it can. And so when you've got a vision focused on others, what we call a life of significance, you know, yes. I want to get my heart right and um, my motives, you know, whatever beliefs you believe, it could be, for me, it's Christianity, it could be Buddhism, Islam, mm-hmm. Hinduism, another philosophy, whatever is your truth, dig down into your truth and use that as a foundation for finding who you are and what you're passionate about and it's that it's the inner soul work that's so important that you know you matter. Right. Absolutely. Every human, every human being, I think, is beautifully and wonderfully created and and and, and you matter. You Absolutely. Know? Well, you talked about forgiveness and you touched on authenticity a little bit. And you write at length the power of authenticity in your book, uh, Crucible Leadership. Mm-hmm. Why are they so important? And how in the world do you even start to dig into that work of being authentic. Now we tell people all the time, be genuine and be authentic. Then there's a lot of pressure out here. Um, Sometimes we're having to be adaptable in a way where we have to compromise who we are to, you know, move about our world and continue in our journey. How do we even start the work of vulnerability and leadership? Because, you know, as a leader, we're supposed to know this. Yeah, I mean, being authentic is so important across across cultures. I mean, uh, it's funny, you know. I um, it's the tendency to be corporate. We had a woman, uh, Tracy Edmonds, an African American woman, that wrote a book, uh, "Wild Wild Hair." Okay, and you y'all you probably could figure out what she's about. This is pressure from Tracy's perspective amongst young African American women to have corporate hair, straight mm-hmm. hair. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. She spent hours and hours on a Saturday just getting it ready for Monday. And at a certain point, she said, why am I doing this? And to heck with this, she told a hairstylist, she said, finally, Tracy. (laughs) I guess she didn't felt like she didn't want to say anything. And so, you know, she obviously, I mean, everybody has to do what they want to do, but she talks a lot to African-American do this. And so that's just one person's story from one background. But it's like, you know, be you. Everybody's so afraid of... I've got to be corporate because I won't be accepted. And, mm-hmm. and that might be true in some contexts. I'm not naive about that. But, um, you know, I think there are some places that let you be you. Right. Uh, so I think part of it is there's a couple things. One is, um, from my perspective, dig down into your inner values and beliefs. And, you know, what is it I believe? Who am I really? Right. And for me, you know, my faith is sort of the anchor for helping me be me. Right. Because a lot of it boils down to identity. If you believed that you're a beloved child of God or the universe, you don't need anybody else's approval. Hopefully for some Absolutely. of us, we have loving family or at least some loving friends. Not everybody has both. I realize right. that. Right. But a loving somebody, friend, spouse, somebody, there's hopefully at least one person that loves you for you. You know, think of you, your style, your personality may be different than what they think or want. What's their problem? Right. You know, be you. Be you. I mean, and you've got to just put a, a nail, you know, a nail down, a marker down, and say, "I am who I am," and that's okay, yeah. you know. And just have that 
self-confidence. It comes through your inner beliefs and some good friends who can help support you and, you know, be you and be your best self. But it's everybody wants to mold you into a certain mm-hmm. way. And so be you. And the second part is easy to say, but what, you know, if, if your workplace is just feel like it's crucifying everything about you, try and find somewhere else. For some, they might not have too many choices, but for others, it's like, you know, don't stay in a place where you're not being appreciated or treated as a human, just as exactly. some cog. You know, you're worth it. And, you know, it's not like they're right and you're wrong. Right, right. It's just the alignment. You're not aligned. No, just, you know, who you are is a beautiful, I mean, from my faith perspective, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're all beautiful. And so we need to act and live in, in light of that. And so it's a journey, but you are valued and important. And don't let other people, because when you start being somebody else, your inner soul just begins to crumble. As Thoreau said, you live lives of quiet desperation. Mm. It's soul crushing if you try to live somebody else's life or put some persona on. You won't be happy. Yeah. You feel like you're in a straitjacket all day. You take it off at night and, oh, that was good. But that's not sustainable, as we know. Right. Exactly. So one of the other things that you're talking about in your book is having a personal vision. And I think that helps when if you are standing strong in your personal vision, you have a little bit more of a guided path and you feel a little bit more confident in the way forward. Why is that so critical in one's journey? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. So part of helping you be truly you is yes, knowing your beliefs and how you're wired, but it's also having a direction that you believe in. So, you know, really, I talk a lot in, in my book um, is, you know, I think we're all made to lead a life of significance, which I define as a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others, whatever that means to you. But if you feel like, you know, I'm doing something to help others, if you're some narcissistic person that's all about me and getting rich and mm-hmm. if I've tread on people on the way, so what? You know, people are just expendable. You, you will live a life of misery. You may be wealthy, but you'll be miserable. The only way to join fulfillment yeah. and everybody, everyone that's human wants to live a joyful and fulfilled life. Right. If you want that, you've got to focus on others. Yes, from a, a sense, a good foundation within yourself. But often people have been through crucibles. It may be what I went through. Maybe it's injustice. I don't want any another living human to go through what I went through. I'm going to fight and advocate for people. Right. Well, that's that will motivate you to get out of bed every morning. Absolutely. It could be, hey, maybe there's an invention or a business. It could. It doesn't have to be massive. It could be something in your community. You know, it could be a nonprofit. The yeah. size is irrelevant. It's what's what's something that you believe in. And when you do that and you surround yourself with what we call fellow travelers, people that believe as much as you in the vision, now you've got a team of fellow believers, if you will, in the vision. Now life is exciting and you, you, what you do, you feel like matters. And then you'll say to yourself, you know, I know I got my stuff. I need to deal with this because if I don't deal with my stuff, other people don't get helped. You know? Yes. And if I don't deal with my stuff and I, and I get, go to work cranky with my team members and my nonprofit, for instance, I start chewing them out because I'm not dealing with my stuff. That's not right. No. Okay. Those people in your job didn't do anything. And, and what often happens with anger and bitterness, it knows no, no, it knows no bounds of race, background, gender. 
So if you're, if you're filled with anger and bitterness, you will typically take it out on the ones you love the most. Totally. Sure. And, and, and why do that? Absolutely. It's not, it's not, that's not right to, to take that out on people that you love Absolutely. and are there for you. So as you move towards that vision, it just gives you extra incentive to deal with that soul work because yes. the vision matters, you matter, and your team matters. Absolutely. All of it can help reinforce you doing that hard weeding and gardening of just dealing with your own stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And you you raise a great point because, you know, those are e- easy targets. You know, people in our family or people who we work with who come in contact with us day to day. But you know what? Those are also those people when no one else is around who are going to be supporting us. Those are our anchors as yeah. well. And it's just so crazy how we sometimes will take it out on the people who are mostly accessible to us or who are closest to us um, because they are such easy targets. But you've created so much damage over time. Um, how long do you think that environment is going to be a thriving one for you? So you raise a great point. I can't, I can't agree with you more on that. You know, there's some historical leaders that you shout out and talk about in your book and giving the example of, you know, walking into your purpose and walking into your vision. Any story there that you share within your book or stand out as, you know, one of your favorites or one that you like to talk about as you do this work? Boy, there is so many. I talk about you know, Lincoln, <laughs> Churchill, my ancestor, John Fairfax. Um, you know, probably um, one that maybe is less well-known would be my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax. He was a person of great faith. And, you know, I'm, you know, as I mentioned in that talk in church, I'm not a righteous, I didn't try to hurt anybody, but it was my own folly. But I'm, I remember my ancestor in the late 1830s, he had a small newspaper in England and he published an article about a local lawyer saying that local lawyer was corrupt. Well, that local lawyer sued him. The judge found in my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax's favor, saying, your article was right. That lawyer was corrupt. Mm -hmm. He deserved what he got. But yet my ancestor was bankrupted. Mm -hmm. So he was proven right by the legal system. Now he moved to Australia and founded this great media company and never held any bitterness. And then he did what's I think it's, it's not really forgiveness. It's like, it's like crazy level. I don't know that it even makes sense. I'm not advocating it. He went back 20 years later or something when he, by then, become successful. And he then uh, paid back his creditors, which once you're bankrupt, you don't have to pay back your creditors. You have okay. a legal obligation, but he did. He paid wow. them back. And they were like, this lawyer had long since died. He paid back the court costs to the widow of the man who sued him. Oh, wow. Now, that to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but <laughs> it's hard to criticize somebody that kind of overdoes forgiveness. And, you know, I mean, how can you criticize somebody for giving too much? Exactly. You know? Exactly. But that's kind of crazy. You know, the person that persecuted you to pay their court costs, <sighs> even if it's to his widow. I mean, yeah. why? Yeah. So I'm, again, I'm not saying I agree. You know, his employees said, you know, we've lost a beloved employer. I mean, who says that in the 1800s? They've lost a beloved employer. Mm-mm. I mean, this is before a lot of the legislation that keeps people safe. It didn't exist back then. No, you know? not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. And that's a true testament to the character of your great great grandfather, though. And who knows? Perhaps when all of this was, you know, coming to a head with business, you never know. You may have been channeling your grandfather 
your great great grandfather on yeah. um, you know getting back up to where you are now who knows well i think you know i've sort of maybe blown the business legacy but you know as i mentioned before faith is important to me i'm a yes. elder at my non-denominational church i was an elder at my kids uh school in annapolis very christian school where a lot of folks from my county, Anne Arundel, Prince George's lot in that area all go there of both um, over time. You know, that, that I felt like maybe I blew his business legacy, but the faith legacy in some ways I try to continue. And that, that means to have an ancestor with that kind of faith, it means everything. Not everybody has them. I think a lot of us, if you look back, maybe we have a grandmother, a grandfather, we think, boy, I'm so blessed to have that person in my life and Absolutely. hear their stories and their character. And that means something to have Oh yeah, a, a loved one that you think, but that's a legacy. I, there are some legacies that are worth perpetuating. Absolutely. Some that are not, but some are. Some I that think are. so. I think so. And that's a good one. Any other things that we should know that's coming down the pike for you, Warwick? You have this wonderful book. Did I hear you also have a show, a podcast? Did you slip yeah. that in as well? Tell yeah, us a I tried bit to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we, it's um, Beyond the Crucible, and basically we've interviewed uh, over 70 folks, so a few Australians, funnily enough, in there, I wonder how that happens, but um, <laughs> being from Australia, but every, you know, we've had a Navy SEAL that was paralyzed in a parachuting accident, we've had victims of abuse, we've had every kind of crucible, and so really, what, what we like to say is we're dealers in hope that your worst day doesn't have to define you. you today might be the day you're at the bottom of the pit, right. but you know today can be better. And we talk about this a lot. It all begins with one positive step. Yes. Yes. No matter, even if it's a tiny step. And whether it's from my perspective, from the faith perspective, from the Lord or from your inner soul, whatever it is, there's that still small voice you know, one of the ways with a game of life that's won and lost is listen to that sm still small voice. It may be an opportunity, maybe step back from your darkest day is listen to that voice and act upon it because good things will happen if, if you listen to that inner voice within yourself. You know, you have shared so much, you know, gems here on the show. And one of the things I usually ask of all my guests is to share either a, their favorite quote or some words of affirmation some things that they'd like to live by when they're feeling less motivated, kind of default to this, these words uh, to keep you going. I always get something different back from all the individuals that I have on the show. I'd love to hear what you have to share in that respect. Boy, that is, there's so many things I could think of, <laughs> but, you know, Scrum that kind of helped me is, you know, First John 2.17, it talks about the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Basically, the way I translate it, it's not about what the world wants or family business. It's really kind of doing um, what's within your inner soul, from my perspective, your God-given soul. But, you know, money and riches and success, it's not wrong. But in of itself, it will never satisfy. But it, it doesn't last. Again, I'm not against success, but... You want to focus on others, on something that you feel will make the world a better place. And so I think about that often is, you know, it's not about, you know, retro, no, it's not about, you know, reclaiming my reputation or money, although we're extremely comfortable. It's not about any of the external things. It's about just what matters to me internally. You know, as I said to my publisher, who's fortunately a person of faith, and my book came out 
I just want to be faithful to the message I believe God has put on my life. And it's about the message, not about empire building. It's about helping lives. Yes. If somebody comes on my podcast and this has happened and they said, you created a, a, a safe place where my story could be heard. And that means everything to me. Absolutely. That means everything. Yes. That means far more than thousands of books sold. If I can get somebody's story out that nobody's ever heard of, um, not only will it touch other people, it touches me. I learn. Focus on that internal journey. Success is meaningless. And as I can certify, I grew up with about as many successful and wealthy people as you can imagine. It doesn't make you happy. It's not right. wrong. Right. You don't have your, your guiding light can't be success, money, and fame. Absolutely. It, it will Absolutely. not bring you happiness. It's satisfying the desires of your inner soul. That's what will make you truly fulfilled. Well, I have enjoyed our time. You are someone, Warwick, that not only does this work, but you are the work. You're creating your own legacy. I want to thank you so much, one, for, for giving back the way you've been able to do. You're humbled or uh, on your why, on the, the why you decide to write this book, why you decide to tell your story, launch a podcast, work with many people from different backgrounds. It's not unnoticed, and I appreciate your work. Well, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And, and I, I love I love what you do in fighting for people's souls, really, for people's you know, inner self. So thank you. Absolutely. The word. The word. For those who are hanging around after that fascinating interview with Warwick Fairfax, welcome to The Word, which is a segment where I offer up just one last gem, you know, one last taste, little nugget, uh, before the show ends. You can call it my bring it home session. Either way, this is where I provide quick takeaways in the form of a message, some tips, action items, a quote. You know, I'm a big quote person. The goal is to leave you with something to think about and, of course, get you motivated. You know, on today's show, we discuss leading through crisis. You know, when your back is up against the wall and you're going through these dark moments. When you're wondering, you know, what could go wrong next? But what I want you to do is also remember that during those times, you are stretching yourself in a damn good way to prepare you even further for some of your biggest fights to come. Just think about it. How are you going to be able to make smart decisions without the understanding of what it takes to sacrifice, what it takes to overcome adversity, what it takes to heal. Your darkest moments are teaching you a lesson of a lifetime. And after you've cried for days on end, pulled yourself from addiction, faced your trauma, breathe and realize the power is within you. So let's use it. Thank you for tuning in. It's Amanda Smith, y'all, on the Know You First podcast. Executive producer and host, Amanda Smith. Sound engineer is Rashad Smith. Music by Motion Array. Know You First podcast is published by Wave Sync Media.